0: You may be dismissed to your class, 4th and 5th graders, you were dismissed to your class. If you don't know where it is, just hang out or just kind of follow the herd that's taken off here. Uh, We are in the middle of a series entitled Dashboard, and we're using the metaphor, you know in your your car you've got that dashboard, and every once in a while there's something that happens where that light pops on that you get that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach that you know something's not right with the car, this is going to cost me a lot of money. And so it might be the check engine, the oil light, whatever it is. And as I was thinking through, just kind of preparing for the message series, it's sort of that metaphor of, wouldn't it be great if we had kind of a dashboard of life that had these warning lights that would go off when we know something is wrong and needs, we need to pay attention to it? And so last week, we began with just warning signals for something is wrong in your spiritual life, and when that light goes off, if any of these warnings are in your life, that means we should probably pay some attention to our spiritual life and figure out what it is because it will not go well in the future. This week, I want to talk about the warning light of Relationships. And the uh, lights that should go off in our lives when something is askew in regards to our relationships. Now, let me just say this up front. This sermon is very kind of prefer- proverbial in nature. What I mean by that is it's like the Bible. There's different genres in the Bible. You've got some that are history books. You've got some that are letters. You've got some that are apocryphal writings. And, so you got, and then you've got like the book of Proverbs, which is a lot of things, really fast-changing topics, those sorts of things. This message series, are, today's message is sort of like that. It's proverbial. It's not a deep expository. We're going to dig into the word here. It's sort of like, here's a couple of points, and I'm going to go fast. So, in fact, I'm going to cover, I uh, hope everybody, so uh, I, got, I got eight points for people who are married And nine points for people who are not married. Because the thing about relationships, what we know about it is, it could create the most drama than anything else when we deal with relationships. When I see
1: that Verizon guy, I'm punching him square in the face. I'm telling you right now.
2: It says on there you're supposed to turn right.
1: I've been turning right. I'll turn right again. I'll turn right again. I'm going in circles, all right? I'm turning right.
2: I think you're lost.
1: I'm not lost. We're just taking the scenic route.
2: The scenic route? Really? Eddie, we're in a church.
1: Yes, because the church is on the scenic route. See, they have guitars. See the drums. Oh, a buffet.
2: You were supposed to take me to a nice restaurant. Can't you just admit now you got us lost?
1: (laughs) Oh, Melissa. Sweet, simple Melissa. I am a man. Men never get lost. In fact, you could drop me in the middle of a jungle and I could find my way out. Using only the moss on a tree and the sun.
2: Honey, Bunny, I would love to drop you in the middle of a jungle. (laughs) But you need to ask that guy over there for some directions. Which one? The pastor.
1: He kind of looks busy.
2: Ed, ask him.
1: So, uh, anyway, how about them bears? Ed. Ow! All right, all right. Uh, yes, sir, uh... Me and my wife, uh, we veered off, of course. We're just a tiny, I took a wrong turn. It's just, I mean, we're just... Your Honor,
2: we are lost.
1: Melissa! (laughs) Ed, my mother was so right about you. What are you trying to say? This is the longest conversation we've even had in a while. Conversation? Conversation? You call backseat driving and constant criticism a conversation?
2: We have to have those conversations so that you know everything you're doing wrong.
1: Listen here, woman.
0: hey. hey, hey, hey okay, where are you two headed? Pizza Red Hut. Red Lobster.
2: Oh my gosh, Pizza <sighs> Hut again? Really? You know how I get when I eat pizza.
1: Yes, because it's only when you eat pizza. Excuse me? Nothing, ma'am. Uh, listen, we're a little lost. We're really hungry. Can you help us out?
0: Yes, I, I think I can. Um, you know, as so it's about relationships. There could be lots of drama that goes on in them. And clearly, some people have major issues going on in their relationship, major issues going on. And,
1: uh, I can yeah, hear you. Yeah, we're, we're standing right
0: here. You know that, right? Okay, all right, all right. Here's what you need to do. Take a ride on Miami, a ride on Ireland. You'll end up at Texas Roadhouse. Tell them Sam sent you. Everything will be just fine. Thank you, Your Holiness. Croxy,
2: why can't you have arms like the rabbi?
1: You seem to have forgotten about all those muscle contests I won using only my abs.
2: Eddie, you can't win a contest for most abs. Melissa,
1: woman.
0: All right, let's, let's begin now, if we could, in terms of uh, some warning lights that should go off in your marriage. So I want to talk to those of you who are married first. If you are married, these are some warning lights that should go off in terms of your relationship in the dashboard of, of your marriage. Number one, you have different values, but more impo- importantly, you have a different foundation. You have different values, but most importantly, you seem to have a different foundation now, we know whenever two people get married, they're coming from totally different backgrounds, totally different experiences, totally different dynamics of families. And when that happens, you can expect there to be differences of values. That's, not a, a, that's, that's a very normal thing in marriage. It happens to everybody. It happened to Kelly and I, for example. Kelly's family, she came from her parents. Her mother was a librarian. Her father was a, uh, a counselor. And they d- talked in very hushed, quiet, calm tones. Even if they were upset, you couldn't see they are upset because everything was very calm, everything was very polite. When you sat down to eat dinner, everyone just kind of very politely passed the plates around and just kind of ate with their fork and put it down. And that's the kind of family she grew up in. I grew up in the kind of family where we yelled at each other even when we weren't angry just because that's what we do. And then when you sit down to eat, you might not get second so you get as much food as you can. You start eating as fast as you can. I mean, and so that's the kind of family I grew up in. And so those are kind of differences of experience. And when Kelly and I came together, and the first time I ever raised my voice with her, in her mind, I can't possibly love her because you can't love somebody and raise your voice. And in my mind, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? My parents, I saw them fight all the time, and, and they made up, and they were just fine. And... Are you going to defend yourselves? Is that what I hear? Okay. And so they made up, and they were okay. she the difference of family, right? And so some of you might become from family backgrounds where when it comes to money, you grew up in a family that was very frugal and it was very, I mean, you have very simple living and your dad maybe took apart the two-ply toilet paper because he was going to roll it again with just one ply because it was a waste. And, and others of you grew up in families where, oh, what's the big deal, money this, money that, you spend a lot. So when you come together in marriage, you're coming with different backgrounds, different values. And if you find often that you're continually in conflict with those values, then that should be a warning light that you need to sit down and discuss what are we going to share in common in regards to values. Because the truth of the matter is... Kelly and I are now married. Our family looks different than her family growing up, and my family looks different than mine, than, than mine did growing up, because that's what we've done is we sat down and try to work through what are some of the different values that were going on. And that's the way with lots of different things, from how to raise kids coming from different perspectives, different backgrounds, priorities in terms of time, even simple things like you might have grown up where your house is open to everybody and you could just, everyone come on over and just hang out all the time and and, and it was no big deal for your dad to bring home four of his co-workers and shock, shock his wife like that, but you grew up in a family where, oh no, no one brings anybody over without letting mom know that somebody's coming over. I mean, so you just got to work those sort of things those sort of things out, whether you like Neil Diamond or whether you don't like Neil Diamond. Those are the value conversations to have, but more importantly is if you're, on, you're laying an entirely different foundation. And in Christ Jesus, what we want to say is, Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is the foundation of our life, and he even says in the in a Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And Paul will later go say in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. But oftentimes you you could discover in marriage that one might be committed to pursuing Jesus, but the other one is committed to pursuing career advancement, and that's the foundation of their life. And if that's the case, then the foundation of your marriage is going to be off in such a way where the walls and the house in itself of your marriage will eventually come collapsing down, and you need to have those conversations of, what is the foundation? Is Jesus our foundation? And what does that look like that in the entirety of our life? Is there something else? So that's, that's number one I'd say. If you have different values, but even more importantly, different foundation, that should be a warning light that goes off in terms of marriage. Number two, number two, you don't know uh, what communicates love to your spouse. You don't know what communicates love to your spouse. Anyone ever heard the book, uh, Five Love Languages? Anyone ever read that? Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. Here was the basic premise he says in the book. He says, we all kind of receive messages of love differently, like how we hear it, how we feel it, how we experience it. It's just different for each one of us. And he proposes five broad categories in which people can receive and have communicated this idea of love. And so here's his five love languages. One is words of affirmation. What he says is, some people when they get when they receive words of affirmation, I, "You're so special to me. I love you. You're, you're meaningful in this way to me. I really appreciate what you do." When they uh, maybe in a card, or notes, email, whatever it is, I mean, text. When they receive words of affirmation, there's just something in them that it communicates love. They know that they're loved and they hear it. Now, other people, it might be just quality time. Meaning, put your iPhone down, turn the TV off, I want you to sit here on the couch and let's just look into each other's eyes and just spend time talking and having good quality time together. And that communicates love. Number three, and this is mine, is receiving gifts, especially if they're motorcycles and very, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, it is, and and this isn't about, it's not about materialism, it's not about getting nice fancy things, it's the thought and the energy and the effort that goes behind the gifts. It communicates love and, and, and meaning and those sorts of things. So when you get those little tiny little gifts, some flowers or some, some sort of chocolates or whatever it is it might be, I mean, those, co- those are things that might communicate love. Number four, acts of service. Like you might be thinking to yourself, don't buy me a flower, pick up a vacuum, and that will communicate love, right? I mean, that might be for you, your love language. You don't care anything about little trinkets of this. and I don't want any of that stuff. Don't, and I don't even want even quality time. The dishes are in the sink. And if you do those, I'll know you love me. That could be your thing. Number five is physical touch. And, I mean, not just sex, although that's important we'll come to, but, I mean, physical touch in the sense of, like, putting their arm around you, holding hands, scratching your back, all those sorts of physical touch is a sign. And what you need to know is what communicates love to your spouse. And even as I'm saying this, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know. Like, I don't have the first clue how my spouse receives love. That should be a warning light that goes off in your marriage relationship dashboard that says, well, you need to figure that out. So when I'm done this morning, you guys get in the car, and on your way home, you need to ask the question, So out of those five things, what communicates love to you? Because here's what we most often do. Whatever our love language is, we immediately assume it's everybody else's love language. And so your love language might be quality time, and you're trying to give that to your spouse, but that's not how they hear or receive love. And they're just thinking, I'd like a break from you, right? Because it's a different, what they want is just words of affirmation. And so you need to learn what their love language is and then respond accordingly. And if you don't know, that should be a warning sign. Number three. Let me go back to real quick. I mean, biblically, this is what we know in terms of of love. Love is an action. Like, biblically, love is not so much a feeling or a warm, warm, fuzzy thing. It is an action. And what these love languages do is they they are catalysts for us to put in action those things that we know our spouse, who we love, and how they can receive it. Paul will say this in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, you need to love your wives. So we want to do that well, men. We want to know how our wives receive love and how that's communicated to them that they can hear it just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's action, not warm fuzzies, action. Okay, number three, you neither know nor fulfill your spouse's emotional needs. You neither know nor fulfill your spouse's emotional needs. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, the concept behind this comes from a book, uh, a man named Willard Harley wrote a book called His Needs, Her Needs, and this is what he proposes. Everybody has emotional needs, Everybody. Everybody has emotional needs, and they're different. for everybody. It's not like my list is your list. If we were to all write out our emotional needs and share it with our neighbor, they would have a totally different list. And what happens is in marriage, we get, we get married because those emotional needs in so many ways are met that we have such a, he calls it, it's a love bank. He says every relationship has sort of a love bank, and you are either putting deposits, deposits in that love bank or withdrawals. And what happens in the dating relationship, you're on your best behavior, you're looking really nice, you smell really good, you're taking showers, you're very kind, you're very courteous, you're not rude. And and what's happening is it's depositing all these love chips into this love bank. And when you have a very high amount, then what happens is usually you get married. And then something happens after you get married where you stop doing the things you first did or started to do, and now you're cranky, you're irritable, you say things you don't want to say because they're kind of harsh, or you've got a critical spirit, or you've stopped in the romance. And what happens is in every one of those encounters, all of a sudden there's negative withdrawals coming out of your love bank. And what Willard Harley says is, eventually, if your love bank in marriage is depleted or in the red, you will be susceptible to an affair, and to all sorts of issues in terms of your marriage. Because you'll have this emotional need in your life that you want met that's not being met by your spouse, and you'll find a coworker who will begin to meet that emotional need, and that will will, will just kind of transpire and grow to potentially an affair. And so when I say you neither know your spouse's emotional needs or fulfill them, that should be a huge red warning flag that comes up. Let me tell you what Willard Hartley says is the top five uh, for each. Now, this is stereotypical, right? This is just, in fact, let me, let, just before we put them out on the screen yet, um, for men, what do you think the number one emotional need for men is? Anyone want to guess? We're in church. We can't say it. Put it put up on the screen. Here it is. This is. Now, this is stereotypical. This is general, but this is what Willard Harley, who says, based on his thousands and thousands of hours of counseling, these are the top five, generally speaking, stereotypical needs of men. Number one is sex. Two is recreational companionship, meaning he wants his wife to hang out with him and do things that are fun, and, are, and he's, she's a companion in his life recreationally like that. Number three, an attractive spouse. Now, I'm not saying this. I'm just, I, mean, I mean, I'm not, no, no push. Number four, domestic support. And number five is admiration, or maybe respect would be the right word to say. But these are typically the top five. Now, this isn't true for everybody, right? I mean, guys are, all guys are different. In fact, I have one that's on the, the girl list that's actually high on my list, and that's conversation, but I'm still a man, okay? But on my, I want to be clear. I'm still a man, but I, I have a high emotional need for lots of conversation. So let's go to the women's list. Top five for women. Number one is affection. Men, when you see affection, that does not mean sex. Affection is a totally different thing. Number two, conversation. Number three, honesty and openness. Number four is financial support. And number five is family commitment. These are stereotypically the top five emotional needs. Now, here's what you need to do. If you're married, when you're done here, you're getting in the car to go to lunch, go home, whatever you're doing, you need to ask your spouse what are some of your top emotional needs? And have the conversation of, am I meeting your emotional needs? Are you meeting my emotional needs? How can I get better at meeting emotional needs? So I would just lift this up to you to say, if you don't know what they are for your spouse and you don't know if you're fulfilling them, that should be a warning light that goes onto the dashboard of your relationships that says, hey, something's wrong that needs to be attended to and you're headed for, da- for disaster in the future if not. Number four, prayer and or sex is absent from your marriage. Prayer and or sex is absent from your marriage. And this is the reason why. In order to kind of a barometer of the health of marriage, intimacy is an essential component. That open, transparent vulnerability will be an essential component to marriage. And the two things that I have found to be the greatest barometer of intimacy and vulnerability are in the areas of prayer and in the areas of sex. And if those two things or one of those things is missing in marriage, what it reveals is your marriage is lacking the sort of intimacy and openness and vulnerability that is necessary to have a strong and healthy marriage. And thus, it should be a warning light that comes off in your life. Because this is what, I mean, you probably know this in many areas. If you don't like somebody or you resent somebody, or you have a difficultly strained relationship, you're not going to pray together. It's just, I mean, it's difficult to pray with somebody that you resent or that you don't like or that you've got a rift in the relationship. And marriedly, we know it's hard to have sex with your spouse if you resent your spouse, you don't like your spouse, if there's a rift in that relationship. And so when those two things are, are, are not at work in relationship of marriage, then that should be a warning light that goes on. And even Paul recognizes. I mean, this is what I like about Paul. He has this whole sex. I mean, most men do. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about, men. your bodies aren't your own. It belongs to your wife. So for my wife, it's her body. So congratulations. This is what you get but reciprocally, the wife's body doesn't belong just to her. It belongs to the husband. And then he'll say in verse 5, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think what he's saying, here, he knows that, no, this is an essential part of what God designed and created in regards to marriage. That if it's not there, then you'll just be great roommates maybe. And this happens in marriage, to some marriages. Like, it, oh, yeah, those aspects were long gone. Now we're good friends. We're good co-parents together. But I think in God's design, marriage transcends all. Not, it's not just about being good roommates or somehow we're able to manage the economy of our house in a particular way together. It's, no, he does, he's intended there to be intimacy and vulnerability and openness and trust. And I think those things get manifested in the areas of prayer and sex. Number five. There should be a big old warning light goes off on your marriage if the kids are the center of your marriage and life. And, and if you're married, I, you might know what I'm talking about. I mean, we're really, everything revolves around the kids. All of your conversations about the kids, all of your time is spent with the kids. It is kids, 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 kids' activities, kids' function, money goes to the kids. I mean, you know, what? everything revolves around the kids. It's a sign that the only thing holding you together then in your marriage might be the kids. And I hear this actually all the time people who aren't in love anymore, they don't even want to be with one another, but you know why they're still together? Because of the kids. I know some people who have plans to get a divorce when the kids are finally out of the house, That the only thing that's really kind of glued them together is kids. And what I'm saying is, your kids will never intend to be the glue of your marriage. And if their kids are the center of your life in marriage and they seem to be the glue, that should be a big old warning light that goes off that says something is wrong in this. And And, and so Let me just speak as a guy, because I think I can speak on behalf of guys for just just a moment. I, I think men, they want to have a wife who is a good mother and loves that they're a good mother and takes pride in that, but he doesn't want to see his wife only as a mother. Like if the only thing that comes to mind when he views his wife or her role is that of a mother, that will affect him in a way that is not. he wants a lover, a friend, a confidant. And what happens is the kids are the center. That's the only role he ever gets to see. And I'm telling you, he is subject to temptation to another woman in his life who he will not view as a mother. And in that, how do we begin to have plenty of non-kid time? Right? It's not. No, we love kids. We want to to be right. We love our children. I've got three kids. I love my kids. I just don't want them to be the center of my marriage, or the 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 life of my marriage. And so in that, we have to have non-kid time. And I would encourage you go on dates without your kids. Get a babysitter, call grandma or grandpa, whatever you gotta do. Find time to go out and have a date without kids. Number two, have space in your home that is a no-kid zone. It might be your bedroom. Put a lock on the door, tell the kids, leave us alone. Don't come back. Don't right? I mean, is no no-kid space. And here's another one that I would suggest if it's possible for you, and you should just make it possible somehow. Have a no-kid vacation once a year. Like I love to have vacation with the kids. We love to go do things, I have a lot of fun. We just had one. But I know my marriage to Kelly is affected. If in a year's time I, we've not had a chance to have a vacation, just the two of us, without our kids to reconnect and to bond once again and to have the kind of time that we need with one another. And so I would encourage you, if kids are all, that's your whole life seems to be all around kids, find space to say, we love you, kids. We want to parent well, but you cannot be the center of our life. You cannot be. And that's good for them. You know that? I mean, kids who are the center of life, you know what happens to those kids when they grow up? they become selfish adults who think everything revolves around them. It is healthy for you as parents now to say, you will not be the center of our marriage or the center of our life. And so if you sense that's happening, then that should be a warning sign. Number number six, you have no idea how to have good conflict or you're a conflict avoider. Now, I think most people, by way way, personally, like to avoid conflict. Everyone likes to avoid, I mean, very few people are like, ooh, I love conflict, let's go have some. I mean, no, most, are, most I mean, I'm talking about the person who conflict makes them want to throw up. Now, if that's you, my guess is that you're not having any conflict in your marriage. And if that's the case, that should be kind of a warning sign that goes off on your dashboard because nothing by way of growth and good things really ever come without some level of conflict. But sometimes you can have unhealthy conflict that's not good, that good at all. But those conflicts give us the opportunity to really produce genuine growth. And so what happens is we hold on to things. And so... Your husband begins to do this and it irritates you and it upsets you and it makes you, I mean, and it's not okay, but you don't want to start a fight and you don't want to have a fight. And so, what do you do? Just kind of cram that down and don't say anything. Well, just kind of keep my shit. And you could do that for years and years and years. But you know what's going to happen? Resentment's going to start to grow bigger and bigger and bigger till either you just take off and nobody understands why and your husband doesn't understand why, or you explode because you've been holding on to it for three years and now it's not good conflict. And so, it's to have the courage to say, hey, when you do this or say it like this, it really hurts my feelings, and it makes me feel like, I mean, that is good, healthy conflict. And if you avoid that in your marriage, then you're going to have a marriage full of the possibilities of resentments and all sorts of things and be a warning that goes off. Let me move on. Number seven, you have secrets. You have secrets. Or you can't be honest about your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, but you have secrets. I can't tell you how many couples that I've known here, even at our church, where you've got the husband and the wife and one of them have spent everything in the savings account and maxed out three credit cards and the other one didn't have a clue, like not a clue. And because of that secret, the one that spent all that money and got the credit cards maxed out, they've got the secret. So now everything's kind of revolving around that secret. They've got to get home before the husband does so they can get the mail or the wife. Or something, and, and all of a sudden, oh, please, I hope they don't find out from the computer. If they log out, they're going to find out I did this. I mean, or whatever it might be. It just might be a thought that you have all the time that you're not able to express. Or maybe it's an addiction or a behavior, something in your life that you know. This is a secret in my life, and I'm hiding it from my spouse. If you have secrets in your marriage, there ought to be a little warning light that goes off that says, yeah, this might not go well long term. Let me keep moving on. Number eight, no matter how much you talk about it, you can't seem to resolve it. No matter how much you talk about it, you can't seem to resolve it. It's that issue. It maybe goes back to the value thing. Maybe it goes back to the foundation thing. I don't know. But there's something that you know. We keep fighting. We keep butting heads over this. We keep arguing about this. We keep fighting over this. And as much as we try to communicate well and try to overcome this, we're not resolving this. And, I mean, and sometimes this happens. For me, for Kelly and I, it was in 2003. I'll never forget. We were up in our bedroom. We were about to go to bed. But we were arguing about something and fighting about it. And we kept, it was the same thing over and over and over again. And I remember just being so exasperated, I just said, I just said, We've got to go find help. We need to go see a counselor. Just we, could, we weren't able to talk through it on our own. We needed somebody else to come in. And now, what I was thinking was clearly, Kelly's wrong. I just need to hire a counselor to spend two sessions with us to let her know that she's wrong, and then we could move on. Which isn't what happened, by the way, but uh, <laughs> that's what I thought. Uh, but it was the best money that we ever invested in 2003 when we went to go see a counselor to help us walk through and resolve, what we, for whatever reason, couldn't resolve on our own. And there's no shame in that, and that happens to people all the time, that because of your experiences and your life experiences, you're just missing each other. Does that make sense? Lisa, communicate, you're just missing each other, and having somebody else step in and be able to help walk, do you hear what he says, that? this is what he's saying, and do you, oh, that's what that means, and do you see this really is how you're behaving when this happens, and I didn't know I did. I do do that. Why do I do that? Let's talk. I mean, that's sometimes that's helpful. Just put a a little plug in this coming Wednesday night or kingdom GED. I've invited Jeremiah Wright to come and be with us who's a counselor that I highly recommend. So if you've got an issue you can't resolve, come Wednesday night, listen to him, talk about relationships and boundaries and how to say no in healthy ways and all those sorts of things, and maybe get his business card. You go talk to him later. He'd be a great help. But but no, if you can't seem to talk it out, that might be a, a signal that something's wrong. Now, can I talk to those who are not married yet? To those who are dating, who are single, who are thinking about relationships, let me give you some pointers that I would offer to you in that regard. Number one, a warning light ought to go off in your life when you begin to look to others to fulfill what is lacking in yourself. You are looking to others to fulfill what is lacking in yourself. Have you ever known anybody, and maybe maybe this is you, you don't have to raise your hand. I mean, have you ever known anybody where they always had to be have a boyfriend? Like, they, just, they always had to have a boyfriend. And so, like, They get a fight, and they break up, and you think, all right, well, just take some time to just figure out where you're at in life and what you're thinking and what's going wrong, but they can't. Like a week later, they got this new boyfriend. Hey, i got a new boyfriend. You're like, are you serious? You just broke up? with And they just over and over again, boyfriend after boyfriend. And they cannot be by themselves or without a boyfriend. And those are usually signals of that they have something in themselves that they do not like or that they find unfulfilled that they're trying to find in somebody else. And I'm telling you, the moment that you don't like you and you're trying to get that answered in somebody else – or you feel insecure in this particular area, or you feel like you need this from somebody else, you are this is a recipe for disaster in your relationship well when ultimately that person can't fulfill with that that in your life either. And so what is I mean, sometimes it's codependency things, but here's what I'd say. If you don't if you can't stand conflict in your relationship with Jesus and be okay without a boyfriend or girlfriend, then that's the red flag that should go off. At the moment, you could say, hey, no, I'm open to having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband and a wife someday, and if the Lord brings it up, that's great, but I am good with Jesus, and we, I know who I am, and I know what, right? And, what I, and when you're in that good posture, you become somebody who's safe to enter into in terms of relationship. Number two, let me keep moving because it's fast here. If you're dating a non-believer, that should be a red flag. Because if you are following, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and you're going to follow after Jesus, what that means is every decision in your life comes out of the filter of Jesus' Lordship. How could it not? How are you going to raise your kids? How are you going to spend your money? What are you going to do with your free time? I mean, there's such large issues that because of your confession, and if you're dating somebody who has never made that confession, who Jesus isn't Lord, then you're going to have two totally different kind of lives. Now, you could get away with it if Jesus really isn't your, I mean, you've said he was Lord, but really in practicality, there's nothing in your life that reflects Jesus' Lordship. But if you're really serious about the Lordship of Jesus, then it's going to be difficult to be with somebody who does not share that confession, because so much of life comes right out of that. And I get a lot of pushback from this, and I get a lot of people who want to, oh, I know, or just kind of, they're the exception or whatever. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, and I'm not trying to, I mean, I, I'm not. But I got a responsibility as your pastor to say, I'm telling you from fifteen years of experience, at least here at the Livingstones Church, talking to countless couples who married people who were not believers, who had relationships who were believers, Paul's admonition seems to be right when he says in Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And you know what the do you know what the imagery of yoked together means? Do you know what that means? It's not like the egg yoke. That that I mean a yoke is they would have like two oxen plowing in the field, and one would be stronger than the other, or one would be. It, and the tendency would be they'd go in different directions. One would go faster than the other. And what the yoke did is a big wooden yoke that went over their, the necks of the ox so they could go at the same speed and in the same direction and at the same pacing. And what Paul is saying is. You can't have somebody confess Jesus as Lord and somebody who hasn't confessed Jesus as Lord yoked together in life because it doesn't work. They'll be going in this direction, you'll be going in that direction, and it'll be continual conflict and tension and those sorts of things. And so, um, and I, and when I say a non-believer, uh, I, don't, I, mean even, I don't mean, hey, then be with somebody who says they believe in Jesus. I mean, the Bible, even demons believe in Jesus. I mean somebody who really is following after the lordship of Jesus. Let me give you number three. You begin to compromise on your moral position for the sake of your relationship you begin to compromise on your moral position for the sake of your relationship. Because within this relationship, you find yourself now you're doing things that you never thought you would do in regards to sin. And it might be for lots of different reasons. But maybe it's because they're pressuring you, he's pressuring you, or she's pressuring you, and the next thing you know, you're opening your life up to things that you at one time had a very principled moral position on, said, because of Jesus' lordship, I'm not going to go in this direction And I would say if somebody, if you're dating a a woman who is pressuring you to compromise on a moral position that you have in your life, I mean, what does it say about her that she cannot respect a moral standard you've set for yourself and the incredible lack of respect for you and also the great selfishness that's in her heart by doing so? I mean, there's all sorts of red flags that should come to mind if you're with somebody who on one hand says that they love you and they respect you and they care about you, and then they're trying to get you to compromise on an area that you've already said, no, this is important to me. This is, I mean, this is a moral position in my life that I, 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 have, I find valuable. Number four, if you have to keep making excuses for them, that should be a red flag. You know what I mean by that? Like, it feels like more often than not, when you're talking about your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you have to make an excuse for them. Like, he blew up at the waitress at the restaurant. He's got a, he's got a hot temper. And, yeah, well, I mean, that's just, he grew up like that. And, I mean, his mom treated him like that. Or, well, when he was a little boy, he had this situation. Or, when, if you find over and over again, you've got to make excuses that should be a red flag that goes up that says, maybe this isn't the healthiest relationship to be in, if you've got to keep making those excuses. And kind of couple with that, let me give you number five here. Almost everyone in your life disapproves. If everyone in your life disapproves, that should be a red flag that goes up to your mind. I mean, and, and what happens, I think sometimes we're rebellious enough by nature that sometimes when we sense everybody's against us, we want to dig our heels and we'll show them. <laughs> like, and, but I just, just for a moment, before you get all rebellious, really... I'm not saying you have to listen to everything your parents say or do everything your parents say, but if you've got parents who genuinely love you and care about you and want the best for you in life, if they disapprove, that should at the very least be a warning light that goes off and says, huh, maybe there's something they see that I don't see. If all of your girlfriends who love you and respect you and want good things for you in your life, if they don't like your boyfriend, maybe that might be the time to say, Maybe I, they see something that I don't see in the red flag. Now, I'm not talking about that, that one girl who's egging you on on Facebook. She's an idiot. Don't listen to her. I mean, like, the totality of your relationships, if it feels like they're disapproving, there should be a red flag that goes. Maybe I should pay attention to that. Let me move on. Here we go. Number six, you're settling and you know it. You're settling and you know it. Now, most of them have enough defensive mechanisms that kick in to keep us from knowing that we settled, but every once in a while, you kind of get a glimpse of, I think I really am settling. So you might have this high standard at one time. Where you're like, I want, uh, in my life, I want God to bring me somebody who loves Jesus, is devoted to Jesus. But over time, then you begin to settle for somebody who's driven by a church, right? And those are two totally different things. And we've just settled on this. And sometimes because of our life experiences, you might go, Well, I, I'm, I'm divorced, and so who's, who's going to want to be with me? And so you settle for somebody that you ought not to be with because you have lowered and you've settled because of whatever. or maybe you think, well, I've got this in my past and who's going to want that? Or I've got two kids and who's going to want kids? And and I've had this abusive situation and so I feel like I've got baggage I bring. I mean, I don't, don't care what it is, but oftentimes. We begin to make excuses and justifications where we begin to settle for things in our life that God doesn't want for us, that we don't need. Don't settle. The moment you sense that you are settling to be with somebody, that's when a red flag should go off on your dashboard, a little warning light that says, hey, pay attention here. Number seven, and I'm not going to say much about this, but but here's what I'm saying. You're going to rescue someone, save someone, or change someone. Like you're together because you're going to rescue somebody, save someone, And you might, maybe this is you, but you might know people like this where, Oh, his story was so dark, and he just seemed so mysterious, and he just had such pain. And, and I'm telling you, I think I can bring him happiness and joy, and I'm going to turn his life around. And his life isn't turned around. You think you're going to bring that. And so if that's what's happening in your relationship, he, here's what I would say. This is the only thing I'm going to say about this, get to a counselor's office as soon as you can and just simply say, I'm codependent, and I need help. That's all you got to say. I'm a codependent, and I need help. And they'll help walk you through those sorts of things. Number eight, sex has made you stupid. Sex has made you stupid. Now, this is different than married couples, and married couples are like, no, you should have sex. It's important to your marriage. If you're dating, according to Jesus, you're not supposed to, but if you do, it can make you stupid, and there's a reason why it is. Because the moment you start to have sex, what happens is you are bonded in a way that God did not intend for you, and these blinders begin to go over your life, and you miss all the warning signs that say, this is not a good idea, this is not a good idea, because, I mean, did you know even chemically God created us where when sex occurs, it releases a hormone called oxytocin? It is a bonding hormone. God intended to be a bonding hormone. Thing. And when that happens in a non the covenant of marriage, you get bonded to somebody that God might not want you to be bonded with, and you begin to get stupid. And I just, I mean, I'm just I would like to, did you know the latest statistics, Christian these are Christian couples, 80% of them are having sex before marriage. 80%. That's high, isn't it? But I'll be honest with you, I thought it'd be higher. Like I want to meet the other 20%. I've become so jaded in my ministry, I just kind of assume, but but let's just I'm going let going around Jesus. What he's saying is, when we, when we are together the way that God doesn't intend for us, all of a sudden these filters, these blinders come over us, and we miss all the warning signs, or we justify warning signs all over the place. And so, in that, I, let me just say, let me say with that, just uh, if sex is making you stupid, that should be a warning sign. You need to go back and reevaluate the relationship. And then finally, let me close with this. Number nine, you think he or she will be different after marriage. You think he or she will be different after marriage. Uh, here, here's what I would say. Um, they're not going to be. In fact, those of you who are married, you know. Remember the things you were dating that were just, they a little irritants, but, I mean, you were such in love and just go, ooh, you know, he's so good looking or she's so sweet, and they kind of, and they did a couple things that were kind of, eh, kind of a little bit irritating, but maybe we could gloss over it because that love, oh. and then you got married, and now what happened to those little irritating things? They're not little irritating things now. Now they're big irritating things, and they drive me nuts, and I'm going to tear that guy's head off if he does that one more time. I mean, because what marriage, marriage is an intensifier. And marriage is an exaggerate. Whatever small going on, (laughs) those little small things, only get exaggerated. So let me tell you something. If you're with a guy who he sits on your couch and he's unemployed and he's unshowered and he's eating corn chips till 3 in the morning playing video games, I'm telling you, when you get married, that will not magically disappear with an I do. And so if you're entering into that relationship with this thought that somehow after marriage, it'll be different, he'll be different, she'll be different, uh, that's most unlikely. These are the warning signs I would offer to you as your pastor, as proverbial as this is to say. Relationships are important. They can be for us either something that brings us great life and great joy or something that brings to us great misery and drama. And so I would say, I don't know where this might, some of these might raise. If you've seen that warning light go on, pay attention to it and address it so that we can have the abundant life that God's always called for. So let's call the band up and let's just pray together and bless you in conversations in the car or conversations you might have with the Lord as you try to work out relationships, whether you're married or not married. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who loves us and who, and even by design, did not intend for us to be alone, that you knew we would need community. And so we want to have healthy community, whether it's in the context of marriage or dating or friendships. And so we pray, Father, for wisdom. We pray, Father, for clarity of thought. We pray for the revelation that we need in that area of our life. But even more importantly, I pray pray for courage to act on it, Lord. Those little things that you, we know your spirit has already given us warning about or prodded us in, that we'd have the courage to do what we know you're calling us to, that is right and good, the light that you've called us to. But I just pray, Father, for healthy relationships. I pray you would mend uh, brokenness, put pieces back together again. I pray, Lord, that marriages here that are strained would thrive and be at a place that they've never thought possible and that all of that would be for your glory's sake. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.